The past two weeks, we have talked about our Baptist identity. And what I've been doing is just clarifying that we are a Baptist church and why we are a Baptist church. The first week, we talked about the fact that we believe in a regenerate church community. Um, our Pado Baptist brethren, who we respect and love very much, um, make, make, we believe, a hermeneutical error, assuming that God is forming his old covenant people the same way he forms his new covenant people, through family descent. And we don't see that. We see God forming his new covenant people a different way. Not through family descent, but through regeneration. Not, not from being born of the right parents, but being born of God. And that's the shift that takes place from the Old to New Testament. In John 1, 11 through 13, we read that Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we see passages like that uh, informing us that the church is a believing, regenerate community. And that's part of what makes us Baptist. Last week, we talked about how baptism is described. Baptism is described as a transition marker from living in the realm of death to now being united with Jesus Christ. And our Pado baptist brethren seem to divorce that sign from the reality to which it attests. And so uh, we don't put a ring on our finger in hopes that we'll be married one day. We put a ring on our finger um, to testify to the fact that we are married. And we see baptism um, similarly as a, a marker of the fact that we are now united with Christ and therefore should be applied to believers and not the, uh, the children of believers. And so today what I want to do is I want to end this little series with integrity and address some Pado baptist arguments. This is not your typical sermon. Um, this is more, this is more, very much more informative than a, than a regular sermon, but I think it's helpful and I think it's needed because it's, while Catholics don't argue from scripture, Presbyterians and Reformed brothers do argue from scripture. And so I think their arguments need to be treated seriously. And so today, I just want to address some biblical and theological arguments that um, Pado-Baptists use to support infant baptism. Now, from the, from the get-go, I think we need to point out that Scripture does not teach, record, or mention an infant baptism anywhere. So, Pado-Baptists argue implicitly from Scripture, not through explicit statements or teachings or doctrines, God bless you, 
but from key texts from which they draw out implications. Um, has anyone fished at the Wallkill River before? Wow, no one's fished the Wallkill. You guys are missing out. All right, Ray has. Um, Wesley has caught a massive uh, carp and catfish. <clears throat> Good fishing there. Um, yeah, see me, I'll tell you how to rig up a line. But um, when, you're, when I'm fishing the Wallkill River, uh, sometimes I like to wade into the water but not get my feet wet. So I'll, sometimes I'll kind of leap from stone to stone. And you can do that if the, if the river is low enough. You can kind of hop from one stone to the other. And just almost hop down the Wallkill River if it's low enough. And the reason I have to hop from stone to stone is because um, if I didn't hop, I would land in the water. And in other words, there's nothing substantial to step on if I didn't actually make that leap to the other stone. There's no ground to support my stepping if I just stepped into the water. I would sink. Uh, maybe maybe that's, this is a silly analogy, but I almost see this as analogous for how our Pado-Baptist brothers argue for infant baptism. Their, their theology is based on a number of leaps that they need to make. Unwarranted, I would argue, leaps that they need to make. Um, leaps in logic, leaps in hermeneutic and, uh, hermeneutics, and I just don't feel compelled to make those leaps in logic. And I think the reason that they do this is because there is no solid ground underneath their arguments. In all fairness, I'm just speaking honestly. I'm not trying to be polemical here or, or divisive. I'm just saying this is what we believe. This is what we see in Scripture. And we see our Pado baptist brethren making leaps in logic. So um, I have, I, I think, four leaps in logic that I want to address today that I see our Pado-Baptist brothers making, um, and which also will show you or clarify why we don't baptize our infants, aside from the two weeks of teaching before. So let me just start. The first leap I see our Pado-Baptist brethren making is from Christ's illustration of faith in children to infant baptism. The leap from Christ using children as an illustration of faith to infant baptism. If you turn with me to Matthew 19, 13 through 15. Okay. Here's, here's a number of texts. These are real life examples for me because I've had multiple discussions with multiple people um, in multiple locations about the, next, the following three texts I'm going to talk about. Um, very often, our Pado-Baptist brothers will point to Matthew 19, and it, it reads, The children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, 
Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So right there you see, Jesus specifically said, let the little children come to me. And Pato-Baptists might be saying something like, let's see, you Baptists are like the disciples, uh, rebuking people for bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed. I mean, you, you are literally the ones being rebuked in this passage. Here, here's my response to that, and I think here's, here's an obvious response to that argument. Number one, this, this passage doesn't actually say anything about infant baptism. I think that needs to be pointed out. Um, and so very often, paedo-baptists will take this passage, which does not mention infants or baptism, and use it to argue that infants are included in the new covenant and therefore should be baptized. So what, and I, we don't think that that's what Jesus is saying. What, do, what does Jesus mean when he says, for such belong the kingdom of heaven? I think he's talking about a child's dependence that typifies a proper response to the kingdom of God. He's talking about faith in a child. Children exhibit a humble, simple trust that the kingdom requires. And God is using children to illustrate that trust. And I think Jesus has done this multiple times in the Gospels. Another example is Matthew 18. I do have a thing for that, Gary. The disciples are asking one another, ask Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus answered, truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Certainly, Jesus is not talking about turning and becoming youthful. He's talking about the humble dependence that children exhibit. And the whole point of Jesus' statement is that faith is not about greatness, it's about dependence. So turning and becoming like a child shows that true faith and discipleship is not about attaining some great position, but it's about dependence on Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to be turn and become like a child. So Jesus is using children as, an, as illustrations for faith. Another passage is Luke 18, 17. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And that just illustrates what I just said. He's using children and their humble dependence as analogous to the kind of faith that the kingdom requires. And so in all three of those passages, Jesus is holding out faith that children exhibit as illustrative of true faith. So, my conclusion, and I think the regular Baptist conclusion, is that to argue from this passage for infant baptism makes too many leaps in logic. It argues from Jesus' acceptance of children to infants' inclusion in the new covenant to 
infants should be baptized. And I think it just misses the point about what Jesus is saying. He's using children as an illustration of faith. Secondly, and I think perhaps most profoundly, um, as Baptists, we are not opposing child baptism. We are opposing infant baptism. And there's a difference between a two-month-old and a 12-year-old. One can exhibit faith and acknowledgement of sin. Another cannot. So even on the basis of this passage, Jesus holding out children, we're not excluding children. We are, we are, we are opening the door for baptism for a 12-year-old child. What we're doing is we're saying that faith is required. So, Jesus uses children to illustrate genuine trust required by the gospel. And while our paedo-baptist brothers use this passage to actually argue for infant baptism, these passages actually illustrate the necessity of faith. You see that? That's the whole point of the passage. They're, they're, Jesus is showing the necessity of a humble faith, not the absence of faith to be included in the new covenant. And therefore, we think that, that there's, there's an unwarranted leap in logic there. All right, leap number two. Uh, Pato baptist brothers leap from the household baptisms in Acts to infant baptisms. Now, there are four texts in Acts where entire households are baptized. And... Paedo-Baptists use this as evidence that infants were baptized. Two things to point out. Number one, I'm going to read those passages, but just to set the tone, know that infants are never mentioned in these passages anywhere. So to argue that infants were baptized as part of the household is an implication. It's an assumption that you're drawing from the text. It's not actually explicit in the passage. Number two, and this is the main thing, I think a close look at these passages actually shows that when Acts mentions households, it's assuming people who have repented and believed in Jesus. And I hope to show you that right now. The first mention of household baptism in Acts is Acts 10, verses 44 through 48. Acts 10, verses 44 through 48. This is the baptism of Cornelius' household. Peter, long story short, Peter is preaching the gospel to Cornelius' household, and we read in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak, they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So, Pato Baptist will say, well, see, 
Here is an example of a whole household being baptized, and therefore infants were probably baptized. I think that's an unwarranted leap in logic when I'm just looking at the passage. Why? Because verse 44 says that Peter preached to all who heard the word. I think the reason that that is there is to suggest comprehension by the ones who hear. By the ones who hear. Um, I don't think it was just... I mean, surely infants here, but I think a common sense reading of the passage is that these people are comprehending what they hear. Verse 45, we see that um, Peter was amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. And so these people were regenerate. They received the Holy Spirit. In verse 46, we read that they were speaking in tongues and praising God. So these people who are included in the household have the ability to speak in tongues and praise God. So there's speech and worship. And then in verse 47, Peter says, Can we withhold water from people who have received the Spirit just like us? And there's the pattern. They're baptized because they have received the Holy Spirit. Robert Stein, in one of his commentaries on this, says, It should be noted that them, the them, who were baptized in 1048, are described as having heard the word, having received the Holy Spirit, having spoken in tongues, as at Pentecost, as believers, and having repented. And so I don't think we can apply that to infants with any, with any interpretive integrity. So Luke describes the household as hearing the message, receiving the Spirit, speaking in tongues, and worshiping God. And I think that strongly suggests that infants are not included in the description. They're just not in view. The, the descriptions that Peter uses or Luke uses to describe the household does not apply to infants. And so I just think that infants are not in view in this passage. And I think that's the obvious reading. Next is the Philippian jailer, jailer in Acts 16. There's a great earthquake and Paul and Silas are in prison. And in verse 30 we read that the Philippian jailer says to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he baptized, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. There, Pado-Baptists argue, there's another example of a household baptism, including infants. I don't think that's the right thing, the right conclusion to draw from this passage because he spoke the word, verse 32, who all, to all who were in the house. Again, I think this, this suggests preaching to people who actually comprehend the message. And in verse 34, 
we read that, what do we read? And he rejoiced along with his entire household. So I don't think that this envisions infants rejoicing that their father had believed. I don't think infants can rejoice in that sense. Again, Robert Stein writes, it is highly selective on the one hand to include infants in the baptism of the entire family of the jailer, and then on the other hand to exclude them from the entire family that believes and rejoices at their new birth. So you see what I'm saying? The description there just doesn't seem to apply to infants. Um, and I just think it shows that infants are just not in view in that passage. The third is, is the baptism of Crispus. And this is a short one in verse eight, chapter 18, verse 18. Uh, we read, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail. Hmm. Is that the right passage? Do I have that up there, Gary? All right, that was the wrong passage, so forgive me. This is um, Crispus. If anyone could find Crispus, the baptism of Crispus, let me know. What? Verse 8, 18, 8. I apologize for that. So 18, 8 says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Crispus believed a lot together with his entire household. I think that phrase, together with his entire household, he believed, shows that those who comprise the household are those who believe. So again, there's just another example of infants just simply not being in view in this passage. Um, we do this now all the time in the way we speak. Bradley turned one, right? All right, so maybe that's not, I, I don't know if that's an infant or not, but a baby, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Was that because of me? <laughs> but <laughs> we, um, if we said, hey, the Schleys said hi, the Schleys said hi. That's the thing we say. The Lloyd said hi. The Mills said hi. The Schleys say hi. We wouldn't say, you know, Nydia, you, did you know Bradley said hi? I can't believe he's one year old. He's saying hi. My good, that was very kind of him. I just think when we say the Schleys say hi, we assume that their one year old baby is just not in view in that statement. It's not that he didn't say hi. It's not that he did say hi. He's just not in view in that statement. I think that's, I'm sorry, buddy. I think that's what we see in the household baptisms in Acts. It's not that they didn't have infants, maybe they did, but they're just simply not in view in the descriptions of the passage. And therefore, I think it's unwarranted to, to assume or, yeah, they're not the subject of what's being talked about. Now, in all honesty, there's one more account, and that's the baptism of Lydia's household in Acts 16, verse 14 through 15. 
Acts 16, verse 14 through 15, we read that one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Here there's just no mention of belief. There's no mention of repentance. There's no, that we just see that the household was baptized. However, I would argue that this is not a contextless account. We, we see three other accounts of conversion leading to baptism of households in, this, in the book of Acts. And I think a principle of hermeneutics, I don't think, it is a principle of hermeneutics, that the clearer passages should inform the less clear passages. So if we're not sure about what happened, let ter- Scripture interpret Scripture. So if we want to know what a household is, who comprises a household, we have three other passages that describe households as being able to comprehend the word, believe the word, become regenerate thereby, and then be baptized. And so I think you can, you can rightfully import that assumption into this passage. The, ha- the households, by the way, did probably not include our Pado-Baptist brothers, whenever they hear these passages, you and your household, they, it's like they hear you and your infants. But what, what is actually in view with households is family and slaves, is probably what, what was really in view in, the, in those times. And they would, the slaves would be baptized as well. So those are the, the mentions of household baptisms and acts. Notice none of the passage mention infants. And so I think to read infants into households is just not undergirded by explicit, clear grounds. It's all by implication and, and leap in logic that we can infer back infants into those households. And I think just going through the texts, households describes those who believe and infants are not in view. The Pado-Baptist argument, the main argument, just to put a bow on this point, is that the belief of the parents have a covenantal effect on the children, and they use the household passage to prove that that the children are under God's grace automatically in virtue of their parents' faith. Well, I see the exact opposite being told to us by Jesus Christ, who says um, in Luke 12, 51 through 53, Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth, no, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be divided five, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against father, 
mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So you see in this passage, there's division. The gospel actually could bring division into a family because the covenant is not just automatically given to the children. The covenant is God's grace is given to those who believe the gospel. So actually, I think the paradigm is not parent children you're in, but the paradigm is, as we see through the rest of the scripture, it's belief that leads to God's grace. And if a child doesn't believe, he simply is not within the grace of God. So, anyhow, I don't think the, the household baptisms hold water. Um, I think the descriptions show us that infants are simply not in view. All right, next one is 1 Corinthians 7, 13 through 14. Pedo-Baptists use this passage to support the idea that children are under God's covenant in virtue of their believing parents. The passage reads, If anyone has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children wouldn't be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So, this is, this is an interesting passage, and Pado-Baptists, our brothers, um, say, made holy here suggests that the family is set apart under God's covenant. And children, therefore, are under God's covenant in virtue of the believing parent. I mean, it says right there, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and that the children would be unclean, but in fact they're holy. This passage does not mean that unbelieving spouses and children are included in the new covenant. What was happening in the first century is that people were converting to Christianity and they were concerned that they would be defiled through sexual relations with their unbelieving spouses. In the first century, people were converting to Christ and not their husbands. And so the question is, are the unbelieving spouses defiled and unclean and therefore forbidden for a Christian? Paul's answer is just the opposite, actually. It's not the unbelieving spouse that has a defiling effect on the believer. It's the believing spouse who has a sanctifying effect on the unbeliever. So he's saying, don't... You don't have to divorce your unbelieving husband if you've converted to Christianity. In fact, you, have a, you can have a sanctifying effect on them, and they're not unclean for you. And your children are not offspring of a defiled union. But they are also under this sanctifying influence because of being in the environment where there is a Christian parent present. 
that's what the passage means. Um, and I think Pado-Baptist brothers, just hermeneutically speaking, exegesis, not trying to, to cast dispersions on them at all, but being honest about how to handle the scripture. Pado-Baptists use this passage extremely inconsistently because they, they argue that the child is in the new covenant and therefore should be baptized because they're made holy, but they wouldn't turn around and baptize an unbelieving spouse. Meanwhile, the spouse is also called holy in this passage. Consistency would actually require a paedo-baptist to believe not only the infant in the household, but the unbelieving spouse in the household, which I think at this point we're at the door to ecclesiological insanity if we're baptizing unbelieving spouses. So it just is, it's inconsistent, it's not convincing or persuasive, and I think the way our Pado baptist brothers use these passages are just so clearly um, hermeneutically flawed. And with all goodwill, I, I want to I encourage them to read the Bible more consistently on that. Last one we'll talk about is Luke 1, 41. After all these arguments, almost as a concession, almost as a last resort, Sometimes paedo-baptists will argue that maybe infants can exercise a primitive form of faith. And the way they argue for this is John the Baptist. So Luke 1.41. Here's the text. And when Elizabeth, that's John the Baptist's mother, heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So our Pado-Baptist brothers see this passage, and they say the fact that John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb shows us that it is possible for an infant to have a primitive form of faith. He leapt in his mother's womb when he met Jesus, or when he was in close proximity with the Christ. What's, what's my response to this? You know, I guess it's possible that John the Baptist had a primitive faith. I don't know. It's possible. I mean, he was the greatest prophet of all, so maybe he was endowed with a unique um, manifestation of the Spirit as an infant. But even aside from that, I suppose it's possible for an infant to have saving faith but to insist on an affirmative answer. To insist that, yes, they absolutely can have saving faith. And point to this passage as proof for it is just a leap in logic I, I can't make. And I don't think it's warranted at all. Yet you have to make too many leaps in reasoning to insist, based on this passage, that infants can have saving faith. You have to go from John the Baptist left in his mother's womb to he had faith to since John the Baptist had faith, all babies can have saving faith. 
And since all babies can have saving faith, we should baptize infants in virtue of that faith. That is just too many leaps in logic. That is just not supported by that passage. Um, and I don't feel constrained to make those leaps at all. By the way, even if an infant could have saving faith, how would you determine which ones have it? <laughs> what makes you believe that this particular infant being baptized actually has saving faith? There's no profession. There's no fruit that testifies to regeneration. How do you know which ones have saving faith and how do you know which ones don't? See, in practice, infants of believing parents will be baptized. And so it's just assumed that infants of believing para parents have faith and there should be baptized. And there we get so close to baptismal regeneration that it gets very uncomfortable. So let me conclude this. I've learned more from Pado-Baptists than I have from Baptists. They are great theologians and good brothers and solid Christians. Um, but we can have genuine disagreements in the body of Christ, honest biblical disagreements and healthy debate. There are things to debate over. And I think this is one of them. And as long as we do it with charity and, and love and just straightforward forthrightness, I think it's a good discussion. And what I'm trying to show you today is that, and the past two weeks, is that we just don't see a ground for infant baptism in the scripture. So here's my conclusions. Two conclusions here. Number one, Pado-Baptists uh, seem to be hermeneutically challenged. And I, I, don't, I mean that in a, in a non-divisive way, but in an honest way because I'm miffed at some of the arguments, frankly. Again, Scripture doesn't teach or record or mention an infant baptism, so it requires certain leaps in logic and implicit assumptions. Um, Bruce Ware, one theologian, writes that the absence both of any clear and convincing example of infant baptism in the New Testament and the absence of any apostolic teaching that baptism had taken the place of circumcision, both of these silences, as it were, are significant and loud, especially when set alongside the abundance of, of examples of believers' baptism in the Scripture. So I think there's a hermeneutical issue. I don't think it's the right way to handle Scripture, is what I'm saying. And that is a serious point. Um, I do believe that this infant baptism is a holdover from the Reformation, and we need to reform more fully. Um, and we want to be, in this church, Bible-believing Christians that can make tight arguments, that can draw clear deductions from Scripture, that can handle the text clearly and point to a passage and say, look what it says or look what it doesn't say and build our theology from the, from the scripture up 
without having to make leaps in logic that may or may not be there. And there's no way to tell. So I think there's a hermeneutical problem, which is a serious problem, with our Paedo-Baptist brethren. Number two, I think Paedo-Baptist theology as a whole confuses the nature of the church, which is also serious. We don't want to confuse our children or our members about who is the church. In order to be a Christian and part of the church, you must be born again. And so what we want to do is hold out the gospel to our children and anyone who walks in this door. We want to hold out Jesus Christ, who lived for us, died for us, rose again as our King and our Lord. And if we place faith in him and repent and turn towards him, he promises us eternal life. That's what we want to hold out. And we don't want to confuse people by, by implying that infants of believers are somehow part of this regenerate community. They're not. But what we do with our children is we disciple them. Close with this plea. I have a plea for you today. Here's my plea. If you are a paedo-baptist and you're hearing my words, um, would you consider, first of all, what I've said today in the past three weeks, two weeks, and con consider the possibility that the Lord might be leading you to not only this conviction about the clear teaching of baptism in Scripture, but also to actually be baptized out of obedience to Christ. Consider the possibility that the Lord is drawing you to this. If you say, well, what if I've already been baptized as an infant and walked with God? Perhaps still the Lord is, is prompting you towards this act of obedience. That wouldn't signify some kind of new belief, but it would signify the fact that if you do come under biblical convictions, and if the Bible can persuade you of something, that you are the kind of disciple that will obey. Would you consider that today, my Pado-Baptist friend? If you are firm in your Baptist convictions, I hope this has kind of helped you crystallize even more why we're Baptists. We're Baptists because we believe that they're in a regenerate church. We don't think circumcision has been replaced by another outward sign. We think circumcision of the flesh has been replaced by circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. And baptism is a beautiful act that marks the transition from death to life and union with Christ. And we don't want to take away that opportunity from our children. We want to withhold baptism until their faith is their own. And so that's what we do in this church. And that's what we will do. And we do, again, love and appreciate Pado Baptist brothers and sisters. But on this issue, we see it 
it as a matter of obedience to Christ. Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's not up to me, and it's not up to you to decide whether it's important or not. Jesus said it, we do it. So that closes out the series. Again, I know this has been a very teachy kind of series. Um, I think it was necessary for our church because um, churches, we need clarity of the, on things. And this is the direction we are moving as a church and as a membership. Now, members, we do have another matter to talk about next week um, that is associated with this, but not this exactly. Not about the legitimacy of infant baptism, but something else. And so, uh, members, please come out to the membership meeting bring questions, concerns, and um, hopefully there will be unity, we pray, in our church. I'd like to invite 